Good morning. Happy Labor Day. Last, last day for white bucks. Gentlemen, you have to put them away uh, until Easter, if you're from the Deep South, until Derby Day, if you're from the Mid-South, and until Memorial Day, if you're from New England. Uh, the title of my address this morning is Against and in Praise of Boredom. And I'd like to begin with a question. Um, are you bored? That's a rhetorical question. No need to answer that out loud. But I want you to think about that. Are you bored with your classes, bored with school, bored by your family or friends, bored with life? Uh, how bored are you? Uh, in 2014, researchers from the University of Virginia and Harvard University published a study entitled Just Think, The Challenges of the Disengaged Mind. Uh, their conclusion in that study was as follows. In 11 studies, we found that participants typically did not enjoy spending 6 to 15 minutes in a room by themselves with nothing to do but think, that they enjoyed doing mundane external activities much more, and that many preferred to administer electric shocks to themselves instead of being left alone with their thoughts. Most people seem to prefer to be doing something rather than nothing, even if that something is negative. Um, let me explain quickly what happened in that study. Participants were asked to sit in a room by themselves for 15 minutes, just their own thoughts, no outside stimulation, and they were told in advance that they could, if they wanted to, administer an electric shock to themselves. Um, the participants indicated they did not have any interest in administering electric shocks. That's not shocking, right? <laughs> pun, pun intended. Thank you. I thought of that all by myself. Um, and then almost half of the participants had shocked themselves after just six minutes. These participants preferred self-administered electric shocks to being bored and alone with their own thoughts. I hope that none of you are that bored right now. I'm only two minutes into this chapel talk. Um, and electric shock is not an option for you this morning. Um, I do want to talk this morning, though, about boredom. Um, about what it is or how we might define it, about why we ought to avoid it and how we might approach doing that, and about when we ought to embrace it and how we might go about doing that. Um, so what it is, avoiding it and embracing it. And so in order to accomplish the first of my objectives, uh, we're going to have to do a little historical work. Um, and since I'm an avowed history geek, that won't come as a surprise to most of you. Uh, the dictionary defines boredom um, the dictionary definitions are pretty straightforward. Webster's defines it as the state of being weary and restless through lack of interest. And the Oxford English Dictionary uh, simply points to the definition for the French term ennui, which is the feeling of mental weariness and dissatisfaction produced by want of occupation or by lack of interest in present surroundings or employments. And as straightforward as those definitions are, boredom is a concept that has really deep roots, uh, stretching back at least to the classical, uh, to the late Roman Empire, uh, and with particular prominence in the Christian tradition. Um, how many of you know or have ever heard of the seven deadly sins? I'm guessing, yeah, almost everyone at least knows that phrase, right? Uh, most of you are probably familiar with the concept that there are seven capital vices that lie at the root of all of our sins. Um, that these are the most serious and soul-threatening temptations we can succumb to. Those seven 
deadly sins were first defined as we know them by Gregory the Great, who was the Pope from 590 to 604 AD. Um, however, their origins might lie much deeper in church history and are generally traced to Evagrius Ponticus, who lived 200 years before Gregory and was a monk, first in Jerusalem and then in the Egyptian desert. Um, Evagrius wrote in one of his treatises about the eight evil thoughts or temptations that most commonly beset the monk in his cell. And these were gluttony, lust, greed, pride, envy, wrath, vainglory or boasting, and one called acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A. Um, Evagrius wrote in Greek, which limited his audience, but he had a student named John Cashin who wrote in Latin and who introduced these deadly afflictions to the Western world in a slightly modified form, gluttony, lust, greed, pride, despair instead of envy, wrath, vainglory, and acedia. Gregory took Cashin's list and modified it slightly again, giving us the list of seven deadly sins that's been a part of Roman Catholic teaching and a part of our Western cultural heritage ever since. Gluttony, lust, greed, pride, envy, wrath, and acedia. Um, and I'm guessing that many of you have guessed now what acedia is or how it's typically translated into English. Um, acedia is typically translated sloth. Um, unfortunately, we tend to uh, equate sloth simply with laziness. Um, there was a period in junior high school when I was not doing a great job uh, waking up on time or cleaning up after myself or getting my homework turned in. And I remember that my mom slid a thin book underneath the door to my bedroom one evening entitled, How to Conquer Slothfulness. Um, what my mom was concerned with, my laziness, uh, isn't necessarily the, thing, the same thing as the sloth or acedia that early Christian writers like Evagrius and Cassian and Gregory were worried about. Um, what they were worried about is a much bigger and deeper problem that could result in laziness, uh, but that also encompassed apathy and torpor and tedium and ennui, and most importantly for my purposes today, boredom. Acedia, the word, is composed of the Greek prefix a, which means without, and the noun kidos, which means care. It literally means without care, or without interest, or I don't care. Uh, listening, listen uh, quickly to Evagrius' description of acedia, which he and other monks of his era called the noonday demon for its tendency to strike in the middle of a long day. Evagrius writes, first of all, he, acedia, makes it seem that the sun barely moves, if at all, and that the day is 50 hours long. Then he constrains the monk to look constantly out the window, to walk outside the cell, to gaze carefully at the sun, to determine how far it stands from the ninth hour, that's lunchtime, and to look this way now and that, and that way then, to see if perhaps one of his brothers will appear from his cell. Then he too instills in the heart of the monk a hatred for the place, a hatred for his very life itself, a hatred for his work. Uh, his description goes on, but I'm wondering if it sounds to you like that day when you need to sit in the library and write a paper, um, or that day when your teacher is droning on, and it feels like time is standing still, um, no matter what you try to do to distract yourself, and you are bored. It's worth noting that in ancient descriptions of sloth, um, one might be very busy as opposed to doing nothing. There are multiple examples in ancient texts of monks who exhibited their sloth with restless activity. Um, they might be frenzied in their doing, but they were nevertheless slothful because their doing wasn't with purpose. It was the aimless, undirected, listless, mindless activity of someone who didn't really 
care. I am very familiar with that sort of activity. Uh, perhaps you are too. In my first full-time employment after I graduated from Covenant, I worked in the back office of the Foreign Exchange Department at Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America in Charlotte, North Carolina. My job was to check printouts of foreign exchange uh, trade tickets um, against the handwritten tickets that had been written by currency traders on the bank's trading floor to ensure there were no discrepancies between what we had in our system and what the traders had actually transacted. Um, I sat by myself in a room with no view and checked trade date, delivery date, currency amounts, exchange rates, and counterparty on each of these trades um, by the hundreds and the hundreds every day. Um, that was all I did. It, I was plenty busy, lots of activity, uh, but I was also being assaulted by the noonday demon of acedia. I was bored out of my mind. The famous German philosopher Martin Heidegger wrote extensively on boredom, particularly in his book, uh, The Fundamental Concept of metaphysics, and if you want to learn more about that, you should talk to Professor Tate in the English department because he's a Heidegger fan. Um, there, Heidegger distinguished between three types of boredom. The first is when you're bored by the situation. Um, this is when time feels drawn out and nothing seems to be able to speed it up, like when you're waiting in an airport or in a train station or when you're standing in line somewhere and it seems to be taking forever. Uh, the second type of boredom is when you enjoy an activity while you're participating in it, but afterwards, you decide that the activity was a waste of time, that it wasn't really that fun after all, and you decide you're not going to do that thing again. Heidegger gives the example of a dinner party now, that's fun during the dinner party, but afterwards, uh, you decide it wasn't really worth it. Um, I perhaps think of some of the full Saturdays that I spent watching college football and doing nothing else, which seemed great at the time. Heidegger calls that being bored with something. Um, the third type of boredom in Heidegger's taxonomy is what he calls profound boredom. Uh, this is serious boredom, when you're bored with boredom. Uh, this is when the world no longer possesses the ability to captivate you, and you can't be captivated by anything. It's when we don't care, and when the world is incapable of evoking care from us. Um, this is when the world ceases to have real meaning for us, and life becomes pretty desperate and futile. It's indicative of what the theologian Michael Hanby calls a failed relationship between the self and the world. Now, this sort of profound boredom is a serious problem. Um, it's something that we as believers should want to or should hope to avoid. Uh, and it's also a distinctly modern problem. Um, in fact, it's interesting to note that the English word boredom doesn't even appear in the English language until the late 18th century, right around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, Heidegger called boredom the mood of our age. Uh, Patricia Meyer Spax, who's an English professor at University of Virginia and has written a book on boredom, said it's a luxury and a peril born of the Industrial Revolution, reflecting the rise of individualism, leisure, and the idea of happiness as a right and a daunting personal responsibility. Um, and Milan Kundera, the Czech author of the, no the novel The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which perhaps some of you have read, um, said this, I'd say that the quantity of boredom, if boredom is measurable, is much greater today than it once was because the old occupations, at least most of them, were unthinkable without a passionate involvement. The peasants in love with their land, the shoemakers who knew every villager's feet by heart, the woodsmen, the gardeners. The meaning of life wasn't an issue. It was there with them, quite naturally, in their workshops, in their fields. Today, we're all alike, all of us bound together by our shared apathy, which has become a passion the one great collective passion of our time. 
I don't think any of us would disagree with a suggestion that it's easier to be bored in our relatively comfortable, individualistic, atomized, technologized, modern world than it was in the pre-modern world. And I'm guessing most of us would, be readily, would readily acknowledge the dangers of falling into a profound boredom of the type that Heidegger described. Um, at best, being profoundly bored can leave one leading a shallow and superficial life, never fully engaging with one's own humanity or the humanity of those around you, um, never flourishing in the way God designed you to flourish. Um, more seriously, it can manifest itself in depression, um, a malady that was not unknown to the ancient monks who wrote about Acedia. Um, it was also known to the author of Psalm 102, which is titled, if you look at the title um, in your Bible, A Prayer of One Afflicted with Acedia. Well, I won't say Acedia in your Bible, but if you were reading the Septuagint version, it would. And which includes verse, verses like this, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like the grass. Uh, now, there is good news in that psalm. It comes later when the author reminds us that God regards the prayer of the destitute and does not, does not despise their prayer. He hears the groans of the prisoner and sets free those who are doomed to die. If we're interested in guarding against and combating the sort of boredom I've just described, um, one question we want to ask ourselves is how do we go about doing that? Um, and I think one of the keys lies in understanding the nature of acedia or sloth or boredom. Um, when we unknowingly accept the popular understanding of sloth as laziness, um, our natural tendency is to see diligence or industriousness or hard work as the opposite. However, as we've already seen, uh, that's a misunderstanding of sloth. Acedia is, in fact, a lack of caring. So the opposite is caring. Um, or here's how Joseph Pieper, um, who was one of the great Catholic philosophers of the 20th century, put it. The contrary of acedia is not the spirit of work in the sense of work of every day, of earning one's living. It is man's affirmation of his own being, his acquiescence in the world and in God, which is to say, love. Um, so the op opposite of sloth, of not caring, is not hard work, but is love. Um, so let me make a quick detour into some philosophical anthropology, um, into the study of man's nature, um, because I think it has some bearing on what we're talking about here today. And if I mess up, you can go check this out with the guys in the philosophy department, and they will set me straight. Um, I suspect that we would all agree that one of man's distinguishing, uh, humankind's distinguishing and fundamental characteristics is our rationality, um, notwithstanding the sometimes irrational choices that your roommates might make. Um, we are thinking beings, right? Um, but sometimes forgotten is that Christians have always recognized that humans are also fundamentally and essentially loving beings. Um, Calvin College professor Jamie Smith, who's spoken here before, um, in his 2009 book, Desiring the Kingdom, which I think some of you have read, writes that human persons are fundamentally and primordially lovers. And that makes sense, right? Um, we're made in the image of God, who's described in Scripture as love. Um, that love is manifested in the relationship among the persons of the Trinity, and is also made manifest in the Son's sacrificial gift of his own life on our behalf, out of love. And if we're made in God's image, then it makes sense we would be, like him, loving and desiring beings. Um, Smith goes on in his book to quote St. Augustine, who wrote that 
the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life, to be trained by longing. And our training through holy longing advances in the measure that our longings are severed from the love of this world. Um, now, when, when Augustine writes in this passage uh, about our longings being severed from the love of this world, um, he means that they are elevated toward a vision of the good life of the world as it ought to be, um, reconciled to God and washed from the stain of sin. Um, and Smith elaborates on this notion when he writes that, quote, what we love is a specific vision of the good life, an implicit picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. Um, this is true of all human beings. Um, we all love or desire or long for some vision of the good life, uh, some vision of the world as it ought to be. And the question is always, what vision of the good life are we pursuing, and how do we cultivate that vision in our own hearts and minds? Um, it might not surprise you, uh, especially if you read Smith, to know that he suggests that in keeping, in keeping with a long tradition of Christian thought and in keeping with uh, what any of you who have pursued a vision of excellence in musical performance or literary craft or athletic endeavor have experienced, um, that the way you cultivate loves is through practice, um, practicing something habituating yourself in something helps you to love that thing. Um, our habits, our regular activities, our practices incline our hearts toward a vision or understanding of the good life. So given that we are by our nature loving beings, our problem in boredom is that we're not loving the world and those around us as we ought. Um, we're too weak in our love. I guess most of you know C.S. Lewis's famous passage from his sermon, The Weight of Glory, when he writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Uh, because our desires are weak and are misdirected, um, we must cultivate them through practice. And in so doing, we can reorient them and reorient ourselves. And by God's grace, can be pulled out of the sloth or the boredom that so easily besets us. And this is really one of your primary assignments here at Covenant College. Um, to see to it that not only your thoughts, but also your loves are shaped by a biblical vision of the good life. Um, that your longings are in tune with a picture of the world as it ought to be. Um, our hope is that the conversations that you have here and the things that you do in class, in your residence halls, in the recital hall, or on the athletic field uh, will serve to aid you in this endeavor, that they will provide you opportunities to engage in practices that shape the desires of your heart in alignment with those of your savior. savior. Um, so I've said something about why I think boredom, particularly boredom of the sort associated with sloth or acedia, or, or with Heidegger's profound boredom, is harmful. Um, it represents a failure of desire, uh, to borrow a phrase from the philosopher Mark Kingwell. Um, and hence, it's at odds with our design um, in God's image as loving beings. And hopefully, I've at least suggested a framework for thinking about what needs to happen in order for one to escape that boredom. boredom. You have to cultivate love through practice. Uh, but you may remember at the outset of this talk, um, I also said that I wanted you to embrace boredom. Um, so what's that all about? Well, first, I have to confess to you um, that the sort of boredom that I want you to embrace isn't the same as the kind I've just been talking about. Um, I'm not interested in this case with this, the, uh, the sort of profound boredom that Heidegger wrote about. 
Um, instead, I'm interested in the second or the first sort of boredom that Heidegger wrote about, being bored by an activity or perhaps by lack of activity. Um, this is the sort of thing that most of us think about when we hear the word boredom. Um, in fact, it may be the sort of boredom you're experiencing right now. But fear not, I am almost finished. Oftentimes, we find the activities that we're involved in, uh, the lecture we're listening to, the place where we are, the people we're around, um, less than exciting. And too often, we seek to distract ourselves from the tedium with entertainment. Um, in this respect, the ubiquity of technology uh, in our day doesn't help us. It is so easy uh, when you find the book that you're reading or the people around you or the chapel speaker that you're listening to or the chapel talk that you're writing, boring, to pull out the electronic device in your pocket that's connected to untold gigabytes of potentially more interesting information and to lose yourself in a sea of entertainment. Um, we don't like to be bored, do we? Not for a minute. Um, and we've got the tools to prevent ourselves from having to be bored. Um, I think our inability to be bored is a problem, um, and I'm not alone. Uh, here's what the great English philosopher Bertrand Russell had to say back in 1930. A generation that cannot endure boredom will be a generation of little men, of men unduly divorced from the slow processes of nature, of men in whom every vital impulse slowly withers as though they were cut flowers in a vase. He probably said vase because he was British, but we, and, and when I say we, I mean you and I and everyone around us now in this age of information and device ubiquity, um, are in danger of becoming a generation of little men. Um, everything around us says, whatever you do, don't be bored. Um, and there are plenty of folks who are willing to supply us with nonstop flow of bits of entertainment to distract us from the terror of being bored. Uh, Sherry Turkle, who's a Psychologist, psychologist at MIT tells the story in her most recent book, which is entitled Reclaiming Conversation, of a conversation she had recently with 25 college-age people, uh, students in Boston, um, who told her that their greatest fear is boredom. Um, as a consequence, whenever conversation looked like it might not be entertaining, whenever they were with themselves, they immediately turned to their phones. Uh, one of the students told her um, that her phone was an insurance policy against boredom. Um, how often are we like that? Um, how often are we unable to tolerate waiting in line at Mojo Burrito or waiting for a friend in the Great Hall or sitting with a group of folks that we don't know very well without reaching for a device to get a hit of distraction? Um, and you've got to know, I am preaching to myself here. Um, I am just as prone, and my family's right down here, they could attest. Um, I'm just as prone as the next person to pull out my phone when I'm waiting for someone to show up for a meeting um, or when my daughter gets subbed out of the middle school JV girls soccer game. Um, the irony is that we're missing out on an opportunity when we default to our distraction devices. Um, in fact, we're missing out on at least two opportunities. Uh, first, we're missing out on the opportunity to love the world and those around us by giving them our attention. Um, I don't have time to go into the attention economy right now, but suffice it to say that one of the ways you show love is by giving attention. Um, it is literally a blessing to pay attention. Um, just think about perhaps the most famous blessing of all in Scripture, um, the blessing that God commanded Moses to give to Aaron 
to pray over the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Twice in that blessing, the Lord turns his face to, um, he pays attention to or gives his attention to the people of Israel. Uh, Paying attention is a way for us to love the people and the world around us. Uh, Having worked behind the register at a grocery store when I was in high school, um, I often wonder what it's like for the people who have that same job now, uh, where people are so consumed with entertainment on their mobile devices, with distraction, um, that they often can't even acknowledge the human being who's standing behind the cash register. Um, I have stopped pulling out my phone when I'm in line at the grocery store on purpose. Um, I hope it's a habit that's going to help me be more attentive, uh, particularly to the image bearers of God who are around me in that situation. Um, I will tell you that getting over the habit of distracting ourselves whenever we start to feel bored takes practice. Um, we have to, it's something we have to train ourselves to do. Uh, Cal Newport, who's a theoretical computer scientist at Georgetown, uh, discusses in his book, Deep Work, how if we've trained our brain to respond to the slightest sign of boredom by seeking distraction, um, it will require retraining for us to become okay with boredom. Um, That means that we have to welcome and embrace those quiet moments when we're not being entertained, when there's nothing going on, when we're just wasting time. Um, How many of you have seen the movie Up? Lots, I I figured that might be the case. Um, You guys remember Doug, the dog, right? Who was constantly distracted by the possibility of squirrel. We have to stop throwing squirrels up into our own consciousness. And instead be fully present in the places where God puts us. Um, When we allow ourselves to default to distraction, uh, we're not only missing out on the opportunity to be faithful to our calling to love those around us, um, we're also missing out on the opportunity to steward and to fully develop the gifts that God has given us. Uh, Sherry Turkle again points out that, quote, the experience of boredom is directly linked to creativity and innovation. Um, And as a consequence, she encourages us to learn to see boredom as an opportunity to find something interesting within yourself. Our minds work, and sometimes at their best, when we daydream. And in the same vein, Cal Newport makes a compelling case for the value in an information economy of our ability to do deep work, um, placing focused attention on a particular problem or task without distraction. Um, He makes clear that to succeed with deep work, you must rewire your brain to be comfortable resisting distracting stimuli. And if our ability to do deep work, um, focused work, is of significant value um, and gives us a distinct advantage, um, then in Newport's words, quote, boredom should be as important to you as a cognitive athlete as eating well and getting sleep should be to you as a physical athlete. I'm not going to go into all the practical recommendations that Newport makes to help you focus and avoid distraction. Um, You can read his book if you want those. Uh, But I will say that I think he's right. Um, I think if you want to make the most of the gifts that God has given you, and by virtue of the fact that you are here now, um, I know that he's gifted you. Um, It would behoove you, just as it would behoove me, to develop the ability to avoid distraction, um, to be bored, um, and to put your mind to work. Um, So, my time is almost up. Here's what I want to say to you in conclusion. Um, 
First, don't be bored. Um, don't succumb to acedia, to the noonday demon, and slide into a life without caring, um, without caring deeply. Uh, give attention to, pay attention to the people in the world around you out of love and work and practice to cultivate your desires, your longings for the kingdom of Christ. And second, embrace boredom. Um, avoid the temptation to distraction, to constant entertainment. Uh, practice being with yourself, uh, with your own thoughts. Practice being with others even if, uh, pr- maybe especially if, um, they aren't the same as you. Be quiet, be still, be present, and see. In so doing, you bear witness to the love of the God who is never bored, but delights in you and in his good creation. And as we go this morning, remember these words from Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you pay attention to us. That you are not bored with us. That you love us. And you care for us so deeply that you sent your own son to give his attention to us, to become one of us, to live among us in the flesh, and to die for us. We thank you for that great gift of attention and love. Father, help us to love and to be attentive to those around us and to the world that you've given us to steward. We ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.